Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us, a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 29. It's titled Quantitative Easing, The Big, Fat, Dangerous Placebo. You might be saying, oh no, not episode on quantitative easing. I'm so sick of that topic. As am I, to be honest. It's been six years since the Fed hinted at quantitative easing, the Federal Reserve. And just to make, I could say quantitative easing the entire podcast, and that'll make it 20 minutes longer. I'm going to say QE for short, and that's what we all know it as. But this is the definitive episode on quantitative easing. Listen to this, and we never have to talk about it again. And, and why are we talking about it at all? Well, I, I get questions about it. And, well, now that quantitative easing is ending, is our interest rates going to go up? And so I've not done an episode on quantitative easing. I've hinted at it. But I think it's important to understand what it is and why it's a placebo. And if you don't care about it, at least listen for a while because I'm going to show you how to win at a game of musical chairs, which I did not win, but I saw the key at a Halloween party I attended a couple weeks ago. First, what is a placebo? Seth Godin did an ebook earlier this year called Placebos, and he, he had a great de- definition. He said, a placebo is a story we tell ourselves that changes the way our brain and body work. A story we tell ourselves that actually changes it. Here's an example. I went fishing last week. I like to fly fish. It was, it was a great sunny day. It was about 45, 50 degrees, and I'm in the river. There's nobody around, and, and that sometimes it's nice not to have anyone around. And, and this day in particular, it turns out it was great. Nobody was around. I was on the Henry's Fork here in Idaho, but in a very, very rocky portion. And, and the rocks are kind of uneven, and there's moss growing on it, and you have to be very, very careful as you wade in the river. And, and I'd fished a while, and I decided I, just, I wanted to go to a different spot. So I was going to go back to the car. So I started walking back down the river to, to exit. And lo and behold, I fell. And, and there's nothing worse in fly fishing is to, is to fall down in the river. It's embarrassing, but I, I fell pretty hard. And, and I, because of rocks were that uneven, and I hit my hand, and, and it hurt, and, and I started bleeding a ton. And, and I got up and, and looked around to make sure nobody saw me, and I fell again. And then this time I got, and I, and I hurt my hand again. Now, I left, and I went and fished the other place, but when I got home, I did the thing that I always do whenever I have a wound. I put a Band-Aid on it. Band-Aids are placebos. Ever since I was a kid, you, you, have, you, get, you get a scrape, you get a cut, you have your parents, your mom, your dad put a Band-Aid on it because they make 
Band-Aids make everything feel better. And, and I don't think scientifically they probably don't do a thing, but it changes the way our mind works. We actually feel better. Placebos are like that. It, I can give you a little more specific example that Seth Godin did in his book. He talked about two rigorous studies that were done on lower back pain, and the re- researchers found that acupuncture was twice as effective as traditional medicine techniques for lower back pain. Now, the interesting thing is that fake acupuncture was as statistically as effective as real acupuncture. In other words, individuals just knowing they were getting acupuncture, even though it wasn't done like real acupuncture, they still felt better. That is the power of a placebo. Now, why is quantitative easing a placebo? Well, first off, let's let's talk about what quantitative easing is, because there is so much misunderstanding uh, about what it is. But I I will show you as I explain it that QE is the largest financial placebo ever given by a financial entity, in this case, the central bank, central banks. Quantitative easing, in a nutshell, is a program where the central banks, such as the U.S. Federal Reserve, the Bank of Japan, the European Central Bank, purchase investment securities from their member banks or in the open market. And those securities can be, usually it's government bonds, it could be bonds backed by mortgages. In the case of Japan, it can include real estate investment trust or other securities, but it's it's the central bank going into the market and buying securities. How big was the QE program that the Federal Reserve did for over six years? Four trillion dollars of securities that they bought over that six-year period. That's huge. Bank of Japan last week announced that they were going to expand their QE program. They were going to buy eight to twelve trillion yen, which is about a hundred and billion dollars a month in government bonds, and they were going to triple the amount that they're going to buy in real estate investment trusts. Very, very big numbers. Here's the thing about big numbers, though. They have to be put into context. Relative to what? Four trillion dollars sounds absolutely astronomical. It sounds ominous. But how big is the entire worth of stocks and bonds throughout the globe. That number is $225 trillion. So the amount of bonds that the Federal Reserve bought in the market as a percent of the total value of all bonds and stocks throughout the world was less than 2%. If we add in the value of the real estate holdings, commodities and other asset types, it was even smaller. And so while quantitative easing, the dollar amount seems huge, it actually was a drop in the bucket compared to all assets. And that's why quantitative easing or QE is a financial placebo because its impact is not due to the size, but to the stories individuals believe about it. Just like a Band-Aid, we be- I believe a Band-Aid makes me feel better, and it actually feels that way. Placebos work because we gravitate to ideas, solutions, and products that confirm what we already believe. In other words, there's a confirmation bias in 
QE. And that's why it's so controversial because people say all different types of things about it. For example, have you heard, you've probably read, I've seen articles, and this is a common phrase used in articles on QE. Quote, central banks are flooding the world with cash. Here's another one. Central banks have set off a global liquidity flood. $4 trillion, it sounds like all this money is flowing into the economy, sparking inflation. But what's interesting, those that, that gravitate to that story are the ones that already are looking for inflation. They're the ones that are seeking or think the, the dollar is going to collapse. They're the ones that, hold, many of them, hold gold as a hedge. In other words, they believe that this quantitative easing is this mass flood of money going into the economy. And, and we'll see that, that that's not necessarily the case. It is, $4 trillion is a lot of money, but this was money that the, well, let's go to the musical chair analogy so we can really understand what QE, because it gets back to, it's a placebo because it's what people believe about it and the actions they take based on those beliefs. I hadn't gone to a Halloween party in, I don't know, couple decades. And for whatever reason, we got invited to a Halloween party. And so I thought, I, my son dressed up a couple years ago with his girlfriend as Calvin and Hobbes. I thought, that's kind of cool. Well, my wife and I'll be Calvin and Hobbes. And I decided to be Hobbes. Bought a tiger outfit, bangle, tiger. And we show up at the party and everybody said, hey, there's Tigger. I'm Winnie the Pooh. But no, I was, I was Hobbes. At the one party, they decided to play musical chairs. So this is a bunch of adults. I've not played musical chairs since I was a kid. I'm playing it as a dressed as a tiger. If you recall musical chairs, all the chairs are put around in a circle, and music is played, and you walk around, and they remove a chair. And when the music stops, everybody tries to sit a chair, and obviously there's now less chairs, and so people are fighting over chairs, and especially if they remove one or two. I got out in the first round. That's how badly I play. Now, I had a tail to worry about. I had a tiger tail, so I, I blame it on that. But first round, music stops. Somebody took my chair, and I went, and I went off to another chair. Then I watched the game proceed. There was one woman, long black hair in her 30s. Her, her costume was a beauty queen, and she was intent. You could tell that she wanted to win this game. And I watched how she played this game. The trick to musical chairs is you got to lead with your hip or you're, or you're behind when you sit down. In other words, I led with my head, right? I'm going to sit down, or at least I, I didn't. I, I, maybe I didn't put my head forward, but I didn't lead with my behind or my hip. And when the music would stop, she would jut out that hip and she'd go down and ram into the chair and knock anyone that happened to be in the chair out of the way. Boom, they were gone. She continued to play, and it was down to ten people. It was down to five people, and there were two left, the beauty queen and a scarecrow. And there's only one chair left. Now, it gets a little harder because then whether you win depends on which way the chair is facing. The music stopped, and the beauty queen lost the game of musical chairs. But she was good. She was good at it. Now, what does that have to do with quantitative easing? Quantitative easing is just like a game of musical chairs. 
The chairs are bonds and other securities. Another name for chairs would be people's savings. People's, when they save money, they like to invest it. They invest it in bonds, they invest it in stocks, and we're going to say they invest it in shares. What the Federal Reserve does is what they're doing, they go out into the market or to the member banks, and they're buying chairs. They're taking the chairs out of circulation. Now there's less chairs. And here is the key. If individuals, or if the demand for chairs is the same, just like in a game of musical chairs, they're fighting over the same chairs, then what that does, and this is the theory behind quantitative easing, the demand for those chairs should go up, the demand for those bonds should go up, which means, as you know, as the price of bonds go up, their yields or their interest rates decline. And that is the theory, is if everybody wants to go over those same chairs, rates will decline. But what if they're like me and they don't really care about chairs? I, I didn't try very hard in the game. I left. I wanted to go find a different chair. And maybe I didn't want my bonds, and I went out and bought stocks. And that's the thing with, with QE. And, and this is why QE is so dangerous, because the theory is people are going to still want the chairs that will drive down interest rates, or they want the bonds. But in reality... They might not. They might decide that they didn't really want those bonds in the first place. That's one reason they sold them. And they go out and they buy something else. What if everyone that sold the bonds to the Federal Reserve, the banks, everyone, decided to go out and buy gold? What would that do to the price of gold? It, the gold would have skyrocketed. The total value of gold in the, in the world is about six, six and a half, seven trillion dollars. So suddenly you have $4 trillion going out and buy gold, you'd have gold skyrocket. If everyone decided to buy stocks, stocks would skyrocket. If everyone decided to go out and buy cars, the price of cars would have to go up and there wouldn't be, there would be a, we, we would use up the car capacity making ability throughout the globe. That would have an impact on inflation, potentially, or if we bought all kinds of stuff. Here's, here's the thing. We don't know, and the Federal Reserve and other central banks didn't know what people were going to do after, and institutions would do, after they sold the bonds. They're taking away chairs from the musical chair game. People could do anything. So potentially it could have led to inflation if people went out and bought stuff after selling their savings or their chairs to the central banks. Because what causes inflation? Inflation is when there is a great deal of spending occurring with a limited amount of capacity. So if everyone sold their investments to the Federal Reserve and as part of the QE program and went out and bought stuff, that could potentially spark inflation. But we could do the exact same thing. What if everyone decided today that they wanted to go out and borrow money from a bank to buy a car, to, to buy gold, to buy whatever. We've learned in, in previous episodes that when anyone borrows from the bank, where does the bank get the money? The bank makes the money. It creates it out of thin air. That's how banks work. And I'll link back to the Bank of England paper that was very upfront about that. 
that we talked about a number of episodes ago, and you can reread that, and they're very clear that when a bank makes a loan, it then puts that money in a deposit account, someone's checking account, then they go out and spend it. They don't have to go find the money. And that's one of the the fallacies on quantitative easing because as part of central bank's process of buying these securities, buying these chairs, they have to run a accounting book that has liabilities and assets. They buy the security and then they credit the banks, the member banks, with something called reserves or excess reserves. It's an accounting entry. And people are worried to death that all these excess reserves that banks hold, they'll they'll lend them out. Let me pause here to share some words from this week's sponsors. If you've been using Mint to manage your finances, you know they shut down several months ago. Well, let me tell you about the budgeting solution, the financial tracking solution I've been using for the past number of months. It's Monarch Money. Monarch Money is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You can create custom budgets like I've done. You can set goals, collaborate with your partner. And now you can get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. What I like about Monarch is the ability to customize what I want to see. I have custom budget categories, and then I can go on to the dashboard and see where I'm above trend on some of my spending. I especially like that Monarch will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying Monarch myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. That's M-O-N. A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash David for your extended 30-day free trial. We have a brand new sponsor to our show. It's Yahoo Finance. Yahoo's been around for decades. My first email outside of work was a Yahoo email address. But the financial side I've used on occasion primarily to get data for dividend histories for particular funds or ETFs. But I was pleasantly surprised to get back on Yahoo Finance to see how it's evolved over the years. Now it's really a financial dashboard where you can get an understanding of what's going on with the markets. There are relevant articles from Bloomberg, Reuters, the Associated Press, and the Yahoo Finance team. You can look at the economic events calendar and see which data series are being released that day and what the consensus is. You can see the pulse of the markets at any time by going to Yahoo Finance. In addition, you could see all of your investments in retirement accounts in one place. With Yahoo Finance, you get a consolidated view of multiple accounts. Yahoo Finance serves as a financial hub for your retirement accounts, but also comprehensive financial news and analysis. You need to check out Yahoo Finance, particularly if you haven't been there in a while. Check it out at yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Here's an analogy how banks work. When I was a kid, one of the the best things that happened that I recall is when I discovered the Eat All You Want buffet. And I had to ride my bike a mile to get there, but this idea that I could spend five or six bucks and I could eat as much as I want and there seemed to be this endless supply of food in the in the back well banks run essentially a magic buffet 
in that they can create the food right there on the countertop and they don't ever have to go back to the back, to the reserves, because they can create the food right there in the restaurant like magic. And so the supply of food that they create is not dependent on how much they have in the storehouse in the back, but it depends on how many customers they have that want the food that they have. That's how banks work. And so if we all collectively decide we want to go out and borrow money, that will create a ton of money flowing through the economy and spark inflation. So what did central banks hope to accomplish with quantitative easing? Well, they felt that if they went out and bought the bonds, took away chairs, that that would drive interest rates down because the demand for chairs or bonds would still be there. That's not, and, and so as rates would fall, that would prompt individuals to go out and want to borrow money, borrow money, take out loans from banks. That would, they would spend the money. That would prompt businesses to produce more. That would allow the economy to grow. As business producing more, the economy is growing, more people would be put back to work, and the Federal Reserve and other central banks would have done their job from their perspective. What actually happened, though, is interest rates did not fall. Sometimes it fell when QE was announced, but then it would rise. And the amount of borrowing in the economy did not necessarily increase. In Europe, it's actually declined year over year. In the U.S., the year-over-year loans are up, but not to the extent that the Federal Reserve would have hoped. And the economy hasn't grown as fast. It's been a failed policy in terms of what was supposed to happen. Later on, as it turned out, rates weren't falling and stocks were going up because individuals and institutions were actually buying stocks, partly because they believed that the world was being flooded by money through QE and that stocks were going to go up anyway. It was sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy. They went out and bought stocks because they thought stocks were going to go up. Then the Fed says, well, it's more, it's not so much that interest is going to fall, it's the wealth effect from stocks going up. That's the benefit of QE. As we feel richer, then we'll want to go borrow money, and that'll drive the economy. It was a failed policy, a dumb policy, because no one should go and do something that big not knowing exactly what the impact was going to be. There could have been so many unintended consequences. And so to take that grand experiment on a $4 trillion level and not know how it was going to turn out, was foolish, in my opinion. And they still have to unwrap it. Now, we haven't had major inflation. The economy is sort of muddling along, as it has been. We've, that, that's a good thing. But in the end, it was a risky thing to do. In 2012, there was a study release where Ulrich Weger and Stephen Lofnin took 40 undergraduates, and they divided them into groups of 20, and they were going to give them a general knowledge test comprised of 20 questions. And the one half of the group just sat down, and it was on computer. They took the test. The other 20, they said that they were going to flash the answers to the questions very, very quickly so they wouldn't be able to perceive them with the eyes, but their, their subconscious would, would grab that knowledge and grab the answers. In reality, they didn't flash anything, but that's what they told them. 
Turns out the group that was told that they were going to be able to see the answers scored statistically better than the other group. It was an example of the placebo effect. Very, very powerful. Now, my issue with the Fed and central banks isn't because they use placebos. They do all the time in the sense that they're always trying to convey in their statement that release after each meeting what they think is going to happen. But much of what they do is just telling us things are going to be okay and hoping that placebo effect that changes the way we work, etc. My issue with quantitative easing was not the fact that they were trying to use the placebo effect. It was the results of what individuals would do based on what they believed were so varied. In other words, it was so large, $4 trillion. And the it wasn't sort of that we believe and everything is going to be better. It's we believe and we could take all different types of, of courses, including creating stock market bubbles in, in certain areas of the world. So that's episode 29, Placebo Effect. I want to thank everyone that has left a review on iTunes. And thank you for leaving a review on Stitcher, except after six months, nobody's actually left a review on Stitcher. And I don't know if anybody listens to the podcast on Stitcher. But uh, if you do, perhaps you could leave a review. For those that have left on iTunes, thank you. Thank you for those that subscribe to the podcast. You can get show notes for this episode at moneyfortherestofus.net. That's also where you can sign up for my insider's guide where I'll email you those show notes, email you things that didn't make it into the podcast, and answer listener questions. Everything I've shared with you in this podcast is for general education only. I've not considered your specific risk profile. I've not provided any investment advice, simply general education. If you have suggestions for future episode topics, please email me, jd at jdavidstein.com, or if you simply have a question or a comment, you can also reach me at that email. Next week, episode 30.